I uh, heard that announcement about Valentine's Day, and I, when he first started talking, I thought he was going to say, we at New Community are offering a Valentine's Day uh, opportunity for you. If you'd like a date, uh, we'll arrange that. Raise your hand if you're single. Take a look. That's your chance right there. Just take a good look. Well, it's great to be here. Um, I'm thrilled uh, to be able to communicate with you this morning. And for those of you who don't know, I, I did <laughs> plant the church is like 18 and a half years ago. Because uh, when you say 20, that means most of you weren't born. <laughs> yeah, it just sounds too weird there. So, uh, but yeah, uh, it's great to be here. Thrilled to be able to participate this morning. Uh, let me tell you a little bit about what I'm up to. Uh, over the last couple of years, I'd been, I've been on this kind of migration course uh, in, in expanding the stuff that I've been doing. We've been planting churches here for a while, and I'd felt for some time that God wanted me to be involved in a broader scope. And so the Lord opened up an opportunity for me to take over the presidency of this organization called Christian Associates, which has been doing church planting primarily in Western Europe for about 40 years and uh, really doing cool work in Western Europe. Since that time, it's, a, it's expanded as well, and uh, we have some amazingly uh, cool things happening in Eastern Europe, in Latin America. Uh, we've actually, we're doing church planting here in North America as well. I'll talk a little bit about that. Um, and actually, we're just moving into Africa right now as well. We have a, a team doing missional initiatives in Morocco uh, which is a very unique city. Uh, we're planting a church in Cape Town in this next year. And just so you know, our church is a part of that. And we've kind of agreed to, to partner with Christian Associates. And so you're planting a church in Cape Town, whether you know it or not. And, uh, you know, just some very, very exciting things. Let me give you a couple little snapshots. One is uh, I've gotten a chance a couple different times to visit this international couple in, in uh, excuse me, in Grasse, France, and Grasse is, if you know anything about it, it's the perfume capital of the world. That might be important to some of you. Uh, <clears throat> but I visited them there, and, and uh, the, it's a couple. Uh, Vincent is a French guy, very aggressive personality, really a blast to hang out with, and his wife is Nicole, and she is from Glasgow. So they have two of the coolest accents you can imagine. You can't understand Vincent half the time, but it doesn't really matter. Uh, he's just fun. And I've gotten a chance to hang out with them in their city and follow Vincent around and, and see what he does there. And really what they're doing as far as mission is, is working with uh, Tunisian immigrants. And uh, it's exclusively in, in a Muslim uh, context. And it, I, I wish each one of you could just tag along with me and walk with him through the, through the city. And, and He's such a vibrant personality and so engaging. Like everywhere he goes, I mean, he could literally run for mayor of grass. And we go into these huge squares where all there are Muslim men, and they're sitting around as their wives are working, sitting around and talking, very ancient. And uh, he can go into that environment, and, and people invite him right into their world because he's earned it. And that's the kind of stuff I see happening. I get a chance to be a part of that. And, 
somebody asked, in fact, it was Kalia. Where are you, Kalia? She was over at our house the other night. She goes, is your job fun? And I went, I'm not sure. I don't know if fun is the word I think of when I think of my job. Uh, This was, was my answer. I feel called to do it. And that really has to be the bottom line for each one of us. We're, we want to follow Jesus into what he wants us to do. And for me, this is it. I, I'll tell you, it's, it's, it's a stretch. I'm being stretched all over. But it's exciting because I get a chance to invest in people uh, all over Europe and in South America here. It's fantastic. So that's what I'm doing. What I'd like to do is give you a few minutes. And I'm not going to try to ply you too hard on this. But if you'd like to share what God is doing in your life, I think it would be good for us as a family to hear that. If God's doing stuff in your life, you want to share it, and you feel like this would, could be mutually encouraging, this would be your chance. Who would like to share? Yes, there's a mic right behind you, actually. I think I'm going to use that as a segue into my talk. Because uh, I, I, want, I want to talk about the church today. Big surprise. Uh, those of you who know me, I, I'm not a complicated person. I, I have this love affair with the church. Uh, Kind of a, a spotted love affair. It's kind of like Augustine's comment, like, she's a whore, but she's my mother. Uh, you know, I, I've, always, I've always loved the church, its potentiality, and what happens in it. And uh, I, I want to share with you some scripture, I think, that hopefully will challenge you and help crystallize some ideas for you. I, there's a particular verse at the very end of Acts chapter 2 and verse 47, it's always kind of troubled me, inspired me, you know, and it's, this is part, this is two pieces of it, but I want you to look at just the last sentence. It says, and the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Uh, and I've read that for a long time, I've heard it preached, I've, I've actually preached on it myself, and I think I've, I've looked at it as even like a panacea, you know, like this cure-all, the Lord added to their numbers daily those who were being saved. And I thought, okay, that's the way it should be. That's the ideal. Unfortunately, uh, the reality of that uh, doesn't actually show up in the local church that much. The results we hope for rarely equate the reality of the situation. Churches uh, have done what they thought they should do. They worked hard and believed... Anybody that knows me knows I'm not a church basher. Just get that. But the church in the West has worked hard to try to do what they think should be done, what's important, what's acute, what works. And the reality has been that the church in the West is shrinking. Even many times, after we do all that stuff, the church ends up looking very much not like Jesus. <laughs> I mean, where we end up being a group of people who bicker or who are judgmental or the church gets politicized, or uh, at the end of the day, it just doesn't look like Jesus. It's a church that uh, not only the Lord isn't adding to their numbers daily, those who should be saved, it's actually a church in the West, if you're looking at statistics, you realize that the church in the West, the trajectory of the Christian church is toward obsolescence. There's the good news for today. I mean, that's where we're headed. If you go to Europe, you know that the Christian church is, it's a shadow. You go to churches in Europe, you go there to see the museum, not to see the people. 
And whether you want to come to grips with that, that's where we're at here. Even though we have a full room, that's where we're headed here in the States. We're, in the United States, the church, Christian church isn't even keeping up with population growth right now. So for me, I, I, I look at this stuff and I want, I want to try to figure out what's going on. If this verse even has any tether to reality, I want to figure out, hey, what, why isn't it working that way? One of my favorite authors is a guy named Leslie Newbigin. Newbigin was a theologian, missiologist who early in his adult life moved to India and he was a, he was a missionary in India for 40 years. At the end of approaching retirement, he moves back to the UK. He was a Brit, moves back to the UK, 1984. He comes to the UK and realizes the country that I left isn't the country that is here now. It had moved into what a lot of people call a post-Christian era. And so for the rest of his life, he was in retirement age at that point. He's, write, he's writing books into how does the Christian church actually relate and connect with a postmodern context. One of those books, it's entitled The Gospel in a Pluralist Society. Uh, he writes something, and I'm going to show it to you because I think it's so important to this discussion. He writes this. I have come to feel that the primary reality of which we have to take account in seeking for a Christian impact on public life is the Christian congregation. How is it possible that the gospel should be credible? That people should come to believe that the power which has the last word in human affairs is represented by a man hanging on a cross? I'm suggesting that the only answer, the only hermeneutic of the gospel is a congregation of men and women who believe it and live it. Now, just leave it up there for a minute, Ben, and I'd like you just to let your brain kind of bounce around on that last sentence, couple sentences. And unless you're not familiar with the word hermeneutic, a way to uh, understand it would be the, the literal or understanding of hermeneutic is like the science of interpretation, right? So instead of, if you don't know that word, just stick the word translator in there. That's really what he's saying. He's saying, I'm suggesting that the only answer, the only translator of the gospel, the only way an unbelieving world can understand that this Jesus is the end of the story, the only way they're going to get it is by men and women not only believing it, but acting like they believe it. And that's, that's really the, the direction I want to go. That's what I want to live into because I don't... I, just think for a minute. What else? How else is, it, is an unbelieving world going to come to believe in Jesus? How else can it happen? They're going to make a decision about Jesus, fair or unfair, based upon us together. They're going to say Jesus is not real and not credible, or he, they're going to say, this makes sense. I've got to look into this. So for me, I want to go, okay. This verse that I showed you earlier was, was written in a context with real people. And if you look at it closely, you realize this is the very inception of the church. There was 3,000 men. That means there was a lot more than that. It's a patriarchal society. There's 3,000 men who were converted. What did that look like once they were converted? If we're to be this believing community, this congregation, uh, this translator of the gospel, what does it look like? Well, in Acts chapter 2, we see the, I think, the clearest picture of what that might look like in the New Testament. So if, you'll, uh, if you have a Bible, I'd like you to turn to Acts chapter 2. 
I'm going to read it for you. And please, before I even start, let me say that I'm not going to unpack the entire passage. It's not my goal. My goal is to pull out pieces today that will help us understand what that believing congregation looks like. Okay? If you'll follow along with me, I'm starting in verse 42. This is just after it says these 3,000 were added to their number. Verse 42, it says, They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe, and many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. Selling their possessions and goods, they gave to anyone as he had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily such as should be saved. Those who are being saved. Let me just give you some summary thoughts, okay? And then you can draw your own conclusions as far as detail. The first thing I want to point out is um, this community of believers, they uh, experienced a realignment of their ideas, of their life. There were certain disciplines that they list here that the, the community of faith embarked on. They committed themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer, right? Those were the elements that they committed themselves to. But what does that actually mean? Well, let, let, me, let me share with you just a couple things. The first one, it says, they committed themselves to the apostles' teaching. Now, in our type of church, which are kind of Bible church people, uh, the Bible church people read that and they go, this is what this means. I need to read my Bible and I need to come to church and hear Bible messages. And if I get enough Bible in my head, I'll be different. That's what we teach. But I don't think that's what that means. It's implicit. Obviously, we have to interact with Scripture if we're going to if we're going to say we believe it, we have to read it some. And, but that's not my point. Notice what it says. It says they committed themselves to the apostles' teaching. What I'm going to suggest to you right now is it goes much further than reading. I, I know people that know the Bible so well, so well, and they live nothing like Jesus. I reject the idea. If I get enough Bible in my head, I'll be different. It doesn't work that way in real life. You know what happens? It happened here is they actually realigned themselves with that idea. See, the Jewish people, this was not outside of their understanding. They lived by a rule. And so they, they become converted earlier in this passage. And you know what happens? They go this. They go like this. What do we do? And it says they devoted themselves to this new authority, this new way to approach life. See, each one of us in this room, it doesn't matter how old you are, from the very beginning, you learn a way to live. In your family, your sphere of influence, the people you're around, your school, you're taught how to create value out of life. That thing over there, I put that price tag on that, I put that price tag on that, and I create value around me, and I make decisions based upon that value. You do it. And so you learn how to operate in this society. This is what's suggested as far as becoming a Christian. I have my worldview, it's communicated to to me through my entire life, and it says that you have to turn and realign your life with the kingdom of God, and that's communicated through the apostles' teaching. So you have to change your mind. You have to change the way you move forward. 
That's one of the things it says. We spend our whole life doing that. We, we get ideas about money and sex and how to view the poor and our, how to handle our possessions and what do we do with our enemies and how do we parent. Really, nothing is outside of the pale of this. Essentially, we're coming to a place where we go, I have to realign or recalibrate my life with this new way. That's what they did. Second thing is it says they committed themselves to the fellowship. And it really is speaking of this communal aspect of Christianity. Not only was there a cognitive or worldview type of realignment, but there was a relational realignment too. The actual word here for fellowship is koinonia, which means being together. And it's not just we're going to have a potluck together. It's not just showing up in the same building every week. It's actually they were together. They were doing life on life together. They said they had committed themselves to each other. If you read this in this context, here's what happens. Those strange and troubling words of Jesus, where he says, unless you're willing to give up your mother, father, your sister, your brother, unless you're, unless you're willing to do that, you can't be my follower. And what this says is, they committed themselves to this new community. <laughs> Take that in the more generic sense. Yeah, right, yeah. Here's what I see. Uh, how old are you? I almost tripped you with that, didn't I? Like, <laughs> 22. Among 22-year-olds and people around that sphere of ages, uh, there's a great deal of cynicism toward the church. Many of you are sitting here and you've had friends go, hey, Jesus, yes, the church, well, they can, the church can just go to hell. I don't care. So I'm not going anymore. I'm not playing. Jesus makes sense. The church, no. Can, can I say this? If you look at Scripture, I, def, I challenge you to find something in Scripture that gives you the option of opting out of the community of faith. In fact, I would say living in the community of faith and living like Jesus in it is a greater apologetic than pulling out and saying, I'm just following Jesus. Because it's really hard to be with other people. It's really hard to live it out. And you know what this says? This means I'm going to love different. There's going to be a fundamental change in the way I love people. There's going to be a fundamental change in the way I interact with others, the way I treat my enemy, the way I forgive others. It's just going to be different. And you know what? That screams. That's why Jesus says, a new commandment I give you. Love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. And listen, the world will know that you're my followers by the way you love. You can't do that in isolation. In fact, if you travel the world... The isolated Christian that we see in our culture today is a privilege and a luxury of Western culture. You can't do that in a Muslim country. In fact, you're going to cling to somebody because you need that person. You're going to cling to the other brothers and sisters. You're not going to buy that. In fact, it just doesn't happen. So commit yourself to the apostles' teaching. Commit yourself to the fellowship. Newbigin wrote in the same book I quoted from earlier, he says that the believing community, the church, is a sign, a foretaste, and an instrument of the kingdom of God. Help me for a minute. What is a sign for? What does a sign do? It points to something, right? This is what it is. Ready? 
there is a greater kingdom available. And there's a king named Jesus. And our lives, are, our lives together point that direction. And give people a picture. If we're really living this the way Jesus wants us to, it gives a picture to people. It's a glimpse. It's a foretaste. It's an appetizer of what really can happen. Does that make sense? So when we talk about how do we become a, a community that translates the gospel to the world, it has to be understood that there, there's got to be this realignment going on in our lives. There just has to be. The way we think, the way we act toward one another. The realignment is illustrated in the passage uh, that we just read. If you'll look back at Acts chapter 2, the context is uh, the people were waiting after Jesus' death, his resurrection. Jesus tells them to wait, the coming of the Spirit. There's 120 of them hanging out in a room. The Holy Spirit comes upon the group. They all speak in languages that they don't know, which is pretty cool. I mean, think what, if that broke out here right now. There really wouldn't be any reason because we're Americans. We're monolingual. Of all people in the world, you know, we think we're the center of the universe, so we don't have to learn any other languages. There's a great arrogance here, just so you know. But if there were people speaking other languages in the crowd, maybe Heath, are you still here? Maybe Heath, he's Australian. That's a different, you know, different language. <laughs> are you here? Where'd you go? Anyway, if, if it all broke out and everybody started speaking languages that they didn't know, the very thing would happen here that happened there, and people are going, these people were either crazy, drunk, or something, something's happening. And Peter stands up and says, listen, everybody be quiet for a minute. These people are not drunk like you would assume. And then he tells this story about Jesus and how he died on the cross and how he was raised from the dead and how this changes everything from this point on. And you know what happened? It says they were cut to the quick. Uh, do, you, do you know what that means? Raise your hand if you have a dog. You ever clip your dog's nails? Dogs are cool with getting their nails clipped. They're fine. But every once in a while, you'll go a little too far in, and what do you do? You cut the quick, and they freak out. Right? Ah! In other words, being cut to the quick means that I can't keep going on the way I was going on. It, was, it means to be pricked or stunned or, or moved. They couldn't keep going. And this is what they said. What do we do? The answer? Repent. Be baptized in the name of Jesus for the forgiveness of sins. And then you'll receive the Holy Spirit. That's what he says. Now, if you've been in church more than a few months, you probably heard that repent means to just change directions. Metanoia is the word, means going this way, I'm going to go that way. But what happens here is they, they connected with the idea of baptism as well. Now, in the low church, and we're a low church, right? If the entire pastoral staff is wearing tennis shoes today, we're a low church. Just look around. <laughs> in the low church, we have an idea of baptism that's framed around the idea of in Acts where the Ethiopian eunuch was baptized. This guy is converted. He says, hey, what's keeping me from being baptized? He said, nothing. They take him in the water. Boom, boom, and he's done. And he takes off, 
right? So our view of baptism is, is almost trivial. I mean, we've tried to make it more significant, but the reality is we're like, yeah, yeah, we're baptizing people, but we're not sure why. Let's do it. And that's the way many of you even view baptism. Uh, I haven't been baptized yet because it's really no big deal. Well, just, just so you know, in the early church, they viewed baptism very, very different than that. In fact, in, in the writings of John Chrysostom, I just read a couple sermons by him. He talks about the idea that when you're baptized, you'd have to spend up to a year preparing to be baptized. That's pretty serious. It wasn't like a 30-minute class to make sure you know it's a symbol. Right? Here's what, here's what was required. Number one, you had, to be, you had to have Satan exercised from your life. I don't know when you saw an exorcism last in church, but that's what they were suggesting. Now, he wasn't saying everybody had a demon in them or something. This is what he meant. It mean, he, he was saying, you have to renounce the ways of Satan. You have to give up those ways that are of Satan. That's step number one. Step number one, renounce Satan. Step number two, you have to receive Christ. You have to make him Lord. If you're going to take push all that stuff out of your life, you've got to put something in the vacuum, so you put in Jesus. Make him Lord, make him king, make him controller of everything. I just rhymed. That was awesome. I don't think that's ever happened in 20 years of talking. I feel really good right now. <laughs> that was really weird. <laughs> I think that's a song somewhere, isn't it? Anyway, so... <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> so, so, making Christ Lord of your life, that's, that's not it. That's not all I mean. Renounce, receive Christ, and then you have to take on a sponsor. It's kind of like an AA meeting. You had to receive a sponsor, and they would walk with you for an entire year. It's so amazing. You hear the words that are written about the sponsor. Do not take the sponsorship lightly. In fact, if you sponsor one of these baptizees, <laughs> these people being baptized, you know, listen, if, if, you do, if you fail at this, if you don't sponsor them well, you're going to fall under condemnation. Those are the words they use. They took it that serious. And that, that's not all. Renounce, receive Christ, take on a sponsor. And then when you come out of, out of the water, they mark you with the cross and they commission you as a soldier and an athlete of the Lord. So it wasn't just like, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm going to get my life together, I'm going to receive Christ. But listen, you're commissioned to something greater. Life isn't just to keep doing life. You're, com you're given a mission. They mark you with the cross and they say, you are a soldier and an athlete of the Lord now. Go forward. It's not over yet, though. At that point, they take you over to the communion table and they have you take communion because they want to complete the task to have you interact with the mystical Christ. That's serious stuff. That's that realignment. And I, I want to tell you, I am concerned that most Christians in Western culture have not gotten to there. Have, have you gotten there? We've just committed, like, I'm, I'm, I'm going to take my life and I'm going to realign everything with the king. I don't care what the cost. I don't care what's at stake. I'm going to do that. That's 
That's when the unbelieving world looks at it and goes, those guys are taking it pretty serious. They're, they're willing to even die. The second part of the passage, if you'll look back there, it's not just that there's this massive realignment, but there's more. And there's, there's more to the text, but I'm going to just point out another one, and that is the idea that they experienced or they lived in the midst of radical generosity of their possessions. All the believers were together and had everything in common, selling their possessions and good they gave to anyone as they had need. Do you catch that? Um, in the New Testament, there was a wild generosity. You, you look at Paul's words to the church at Corinth. Ben, if you'll flash these, he's referring to the church in Macedonia and their, their perspective toward their possessions. Now read this. Out of the most severe trial... Their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up a rich generosity. For I testify that they gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability. Entirely on their own, they urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in the service to the saints. In other words, there was a great need in Jerusalem. And this church went like this. Let us play. Let us give our stuff away to you. When's the last time you saw a church with that much earnestness with their resources, with the people, not, not the budget, us, real people? Let, let me read you another passage from Acts. Think about this. In your mind, just draw a little, little line down the middle of your brain and think of what I'm going to read here and then align the American church next to it, okay? And see if there's any connecting points. All the believers were in one heart and mind. No one claimed that any of his possessions was his own. Can I read that again? Because the American church just got excluded from the, the, the field. No one claimed that any of his possessions was his own, but they shared everything that they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus and much grace was upon them all. There were no needy persons among them, for from time to time, those who owned lands and houses sold them, brought the money from the sale, and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone as he had need. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold a field he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. I don't know about you, but this doesn't sound like a lot of what I see. I don't want to be hyper, you know, just harsh or brusque, but the fact is I don't see that type of generosity in the church. I watched the, the special the other night, Hope for Haiti, that George Clooney put on, and I was deeply moved. I, I, there's something in me that I just get moved when people step forward, depend, regardless of their religious background or their experience or whatever, I, I think there's something in us that, that says that's good. That's why it says it's more blessed to give than receive. But I watched it and I thought, if all people, the people in this room and the people that are gathered around this planet as Christians should be known for their generosity. Now, you could be sitting here right now going, hey, forget it. I'm not giving money to the church. They've squandered and misused money for 2,000 years. I'm not doing it. Listen to me. Fine. Don't. Don't. Can I ask you this, though? 
Are you giving anything away? Give it away somewhere. I don't care where you give it. It doesn't matter. There's something that happens in our soul when we part with the things that we cling to. Right now in the U.S., or last year, 3% of people gave stuff away. And I'm guessing in this room, the percentage is higher, but not a ton higher. And you can say we're in a recession. I, I can't. Listen, the only reason you're not giving money away in a recession, if you're working, is because you're afraid. And fear is not a biblical motive. Perfect love casts out all fear, the scriptures say. I don't know what you do with that. I mean, you gotta, you gotta, if you're courageous enough, you look it right in the face and you deal with it. Here's the last point. In the text, um, it isn't just what the body did, how they acted, but they actually declared. They declared the story of Jesus and um, Everything before this passage that we read is a sermon. See, I, I, I've, I've been a part of the conversation of the missional church. That's what my doctoral program is in, is in missional theology. And I, I affirm the idea that the church has moved into, we need to be the church in the world. We need to bring the shalom of God to the world. But oftentimes, or somewhere along the line, we've, we've decided that it's just how we act, and we fail to recognize that we have to actually say Jesus' name sometime. We actually have to declare something. And if you look back at the sermon, you'll see Jesus or Peter standing up and going, all the stuff you see, everything that is a, a sign pointing, this is the explanation for the sign. It's Jesus who died on the cross for your sins, and he was raised on the third day for your life, Right? And so it's not just how we act. We have to be tellers, too. And so you might say, well, what are we supposed to tell? This is very simple, church. Tell the truth. We have to tell the truth. And my concern is a lot of us are hoping we never have to tell the truth about Jesus. Last, uh, last week, Robbie, Carly, Trey, and I went to California and before the sun shined with great drops of water down there, uh, we went to Disneyland. In fact, last Sunday we were at Disneyland, skipping church, of course. And the first thing we did at Disneyland was we were informed that we had to go to uh, the Peter Pan ride. Don't know why. After taking it, still don't know why. <laughs> I don't know why it wasn't that cool. And I had to speak at this event the next night, and I, I was supposed to share vision of, for Christian associates for the world. I'm like panicking, like I don't know what to tell them. And uh, I, asked, I told, leaned over in line, which is what you do at Disneyland. I said, honey, I don't know what I'm supposed to say to these people. She goes, well, maybe you'll get some vision at Disneyland. <laughs> well, here's what I learned. <laughs> the scripture in Proverbs, it says, hope deferred makes the heart sick coincides with Disneyland because you're in line for the whole time and you, you think you're at the end of the line but it's really just a trick you know what they do you're at the end of the line then it serpentines about 20 more times and you're in line for another hour so that was one lesson I learned it's really good one of the other things I learned while I was there is when you first come into Disneyland the first sign you see is 
a place where all your dreams come true. I like that. So the whole time I'm there, I'm thinking, God, please motivate someone to give our church planting ministry a million dollars. <laughs> that didn't happen. But the idea of what's our dream is important, right? What do we hope to see? Uh, maybe you weren't tracking with this, because a lot of Americans don't, but Monday was Martin Luther King Day. <clears throat> and every year, Martin Luther King Day, I either read one of his sermons or I listen to one of his sermons. And so last Monday, I listened to a sermon that he gave, and I don't know what your perspective of Martin Luther King is, but he could preach. He could move people. And this talk he gave was this. You could tell he, the, the pressure was on. He did not know if he would be able to see this whole movement through. So he's saying, I don't know if I'm going to be able to do it. But I'm confident that you guys will make it, that everyone will make it, and this change that we're dreaming of will transpire. And this is what he said. He said, you want to know why I know? I've been to the mountain. I've seen. I've seen what's over there, and we're going there. Man, I've, I'm, I'm hearing this. I'm like, ah, yeah. I'm standing up in the bedroom like, <laughs> But I started thinking about it. I realized that, hey, if you're a Christian right now, I mean, I'm going to steal from him for a moment. If you've actually met Jesus, you've been to the mountain. You've experienced something. And you know what my concern is? Many people, myself included, on, on occasion, we've been to the mountain, but we don't act like it. We've actually had significant encounter with Jesus. We've seen the love, we've felt the love, we've experienced how that changes things. And uh, we, don't, we don't act like it. We, priori we prioritize our time like we've never been to the mountain. We handle our money like we've never seen anything there. We give rein to our impulses and our addictions like Jesus isn't real. Many times we live self-protected lives like we've not seen, like we've not experienced. Uh, oftentimes we measure our words out like it's not real. And I just, I, I, I see that and I just go, how can we as a community translate the gospel if we've experienced the gospel but we don't actually live it? That's, that's the key of Newbigin's words. What does a community look like that translates the gospel to an unbelieving world? Well, there's a fundamental change. It's a change of submitting ourselves to a different rule and a different worldview. It's the change of uh, a radical commitment to live with each other with a love that's not fair-weathered, that's not conditional. I mean, if we can't prove that this love is real in our midst... And how can it be a believable proposition? Uh, the fundamental change affects the way we desire to handle the resources that we have as a sign and an instrument of the kingdom of God. Um, the fundamental change is we have an unstoppable impetus to tell the truth about what we've seen and experienced, what we've discovered in Jesus. We become that community when that fundamental change uh, affects every aspect of our life. And in doing so, I believe, 
that this verse that we started with, for the Lord added to their number daily those who should be saved, that verse gets enacted in our midst. I'm going to invite you to come and take communion. And <clears throat> I want to invite you this way. Uh, many times we have a line, and we get in the line, and we take the bread, we drink of the cup, and we go back, and we actually don't even think about what's going on. We don't think about encounter. We don't think about the, the true, authentic exchange we have with Jesus. We've never realized that that's a message. That is a message. When I break the bread, it's, it's demonstrative of Christ's broken body. When I drink of the cup, it's telling a story that Jesus Christ died on the cross for my sin. And can I say this, and I want to say it as, as pastorally as possible. Normally we invite everybody to come, but can I say, if you haven't got there, if, you, if this stuff we're talking about isn't yours, don't come. Don't do it. Don't play a game. Don't create a travesty in this room. Now, I, I'm going to say this on the other side. Please come. And, and, and maybe it's you like, hey, listen, I have not gotten there. I've never bent my knee to the place where everything is Christ, where this makes sense. Would you please come? And kneel. Don't I hope you don't care if anybody sees you. Fall on your face if you have to. Lord, I'm yours. All the way. Come and break bread. Drink of the cup. Let me pray. God, please help us. Please help us as we endeavor to uh, translate the wondrous, amazing gospel of Jesus to the world. I know all this stuff is not just our own movement or action. It's really you working through us, so please move right now. Convict our hearts. Move us to a place where uh, not just so people will look, but that we are authentically living out, aligning ourselves with you. We're handling our resources in a way that reflects you, that we're speaking, we're communicating the truth to others of what we know. In Jesus' name, amen.